My name is Henry. King Henry VIII to you, that is. Even common vermin like you have known of my greatness. And I am more than just a king, you know. I'm also the head of the Church of England. Theological scholar king am I. To read my magisterial treatise, Esoterial Septum Sacramentorum, is to get but a glimpse into my theological acumen. But alas, my writings are far beyond you peasant types. But the papacy, they knew of my greatness. And it was Pope Leo X who named me Fide Defensor, Defender of the Faith. So great was that honor that every monarch from then until now has carried the name Fide Defensor, Defender of the Faith. But let me back up and tell you just a little bit about myself. Oh, how lucky you are today to hear of my greatness. In 1509, I married a Spanish princess named Catherine of Aragon, and we were married for 17 years. And in that time that we were married, she failed to produce for me a son, an heir to my throne. So I guess you could say there was a little tension in our marriage. And so I decided to approach Pope Clement VII and ask for a church-sanctioned divorce or an annulment. I mean, Pope's choice. I'm an easy guy to work with. A divorce simply dissolves a marriage, but an annulment is like waving an ecclesiastical wand over the entire thing, pretending like the marriage never even happened. And the marriage didn't happen. If it would have, I would have a son instead of daughter, Mary I, who would later be called Bloody Mary. But I digress. So Pope Clement was more coward than a man and failed to give me a son, or failed to give me a divorce while I waited for my son. And so another thing that was a little bit handicapping me at the moment was my, my wife, my so-called wife, Catherine, had a nephew named Charles V. See, Charles V happened to be my, my, nep- my wife's nephew's favorite aunt. And so while we were waiting for this divorce that took forever to get, our, our, the army of Charles V was surrounding Rome, and there was no possible way that our army could outgun his army any day of the week. He also stated that any hint of divorce or annulment would be grounds for war immediately. So what is a king to do? Well, obviously, God wanted me to take matters into my own hands, and that is when I approached a Protestant reformer named Thomas Cranmer. See, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the the senior bishop of the Church of England at that time, was William Warham, and he too, like Pope Clement VII, failed to give me a divorce. But as luck would have it, Or should I say, as the providence of God saw fit, William Warham bit the big one. And now it was time for me to name the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Of course, I chose my good friend Thomas Cranmer. And he did indeed grant me that divorce, much to the shame of Protestant history. And so, after this, I decided that, you know, it's probably best that my side love, Anne Boleyn, and I take the aisle quickly. Because here's the thing. If she was to deliver my child outside of wedlock, the child would be considered illegitimate and no heir to the throne of all. And believe me, he was going to be a son. He was going to be my heir. So, I divorced Catherine, married my love, Anne Boleyn, and she delivered a daughter. Another daughter. What is with these women? Can't they just give me a son? Now, don't get me wrong. I loved our daughter, baby Elizabeth, Elizabeth I. She would go on to be a great queen, but a king she would not be. So wanting no further papal interference, in 1532, I enacted the the Act of Supremacy Law. 
So this law stated that the Pope would no longer be the head of the Church of England, but rather the king or the monarch would be the head of the Church of England. This act also empowered my henchman, Thomas Cromwell, to utilize Machiavellian ruthlessness on all papal lands. Monasteries were destroyed, and I, and I say this sadly, both simultaneously as a Catholic and a Protestant, that many Catholic ecclesiastical treasures were destroyed. Two-thirds of the land were sold back to the peasants who, quite frankly, were excited about this because they hated the universal church and were excited to have their land back. And I used those proceeds to wage war on France because, let's face it, the best kind of a Frenchman is a dead Frenchman. Henry VIII is my name. Fide Defensor, Defender of the faith, a faith that is king-centered, this king, and I'm certainly not under any church authority. And one more thing before I leave. This 20th and 21st century childhood ditty that you have about me and my six wives, I resent that. I resent that. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. What is a king to do? I had two daughters, Mary the First and Elizabeth the First, and one sickly king, Edward the Sixth. What was I supposed to do? Maybe if these women had given me a king-like son, maybe I would have acted a little bit differently. But then again, maybe I wouldn't have. Henry VIII, I am, I am. Henry VIII, I am. Well, that was a bit disturbing. <laughs> Clearly, this is a man who obviously knows very little about authentic faith, marital fidelity, or human genetics, for that matter. Because it's actually the man that determines the gender of the child, the X chromosome being the boy and the Y being the girl. I have four boys, by the way, just saying. <laughs> but, but Henry, you simply cannot blame your wives for your lack of sons. But maybe even more disturbing is Henry's lack of understanding of what it means to have authentic faith. Now, what he did have was a really good theological understanding. He was somewhat even of a scholar, even more so than any other Tudor king or queen. But authentic faith is not defined as head knowledge. It's not defined as an intellectual assent. Instead, it's taking the knowledge that we have of God's word and applying it to our lives for real, true spiritual change. True faith is more than just knowing about God. It's living for that God that we know about. I love how James puts it in James 2, 14 to 20. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? True saving faith in Jesus Christ always results in a life change. 
Now, the faith itself comes when we accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus alone as the sole payment for our sins. Nothing added, nothing taken away. But when that happens, there's an internal transformation that occurs in our heart and in our life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we change away from sin and toward the righteousness of God. And so we are saved by faith alone, but faith never stands alone. It's always accompanied by a change in life. In Ephesians 2.10, 2, uh, 8 to 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So having been saved by faith in Christ, not supposedly by our good works, we see, Paul says, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Living for Jesus, doing his will, outworking our faith in our lives is really the only outcome for true followers of Jesus. So we just heard from King Henry VIII about the English Reformation. We're now going to hear from his daughter, Mary I. My name is Mary I, and I too am of the Tudor dynasty, the Welsh-English family that ruled England from 1485 until 1603. Let me be frank with you Protestant reformers, I do not like you. From my perspective, the true church, the only church, is the papal-led church. All Protestants are heretics and should be treated as such. Now, my father, King Henry VIII, ruled England for 38 years until his mid-50s, during which time he vacillated between Catholicism, his wise earlier years, and Protestantism, his heretical years. And then he ended up in the middle when he declared himself to be the head of the Anglican Church. Worse, when Daddy Dear died, his son, my brother, Edward VI, replaced him on the throne. While my father was spiritually confused and vacillated, my brother, unfortunately, was not so spiritually confused. My brother, Edward VI, thankfully only ruled in England for six years, having been sick with syphilis since birth. And Edward was as reformational as they come. Heavily influenced by a man named Thomas Cranmer, my brother embraced the reformational teachings of the five solas. I can still hear his voice echoing with joy as he spoke of them. I hate these five solas. Sola scriptura, scripture rather than the Pope, scripture as the final authority on church matters. Sola fide, by faith alone, and sola gratia, by grace alone, together coupled with solus Christus, by Christ alone. These three taught that salvation is not in your good works, nor in adherence to the universal church, but salvation is an unmerited, undeserved gift that is through one's faith in Jesus alone, his death, burial, and resurrection alone as the sole payment for confessed and in God's power repented of sin. Whatever. And then the fifth sola, Suli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. All life is to be lived for God's purposes and God's glory. Again, I say, whatever. And then 
Even though my brother and I did not spiritually agree, the people of England loved him and nicknamed him England's Josiah, one of the six godly kings of Judah, which you can read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It was during my brother's reign that a man named Thomas Cranmer, I hate him, wrote these 12 sermons published in his book Homilies that were distributed to every English pulpit, 12 sermons that taught the faith essentials of the Protestant Reformation. Did you hear what I said? Every English pulpit catechized by these same 12 sermons with the faith essentials of the Protestant Reformation. I wanted to scream. And then in the year 1553, Edward died. And I, at the age of 37 and unmarried, was next in line to the throne. But, but my brother wrote in his will that he committed reformer, the Lady Jane Grey, who was a great granddaughter of Henry VII, would be successor to the throne. What? My brother cut me out because I was Catholic. I wanted to kill him. Good thing for him, he was already dead. I immediately sought to violently overthrow Lady Jane Grey, and she went down in England's history as the Nine Days Queen. And for my part, I treated her to an all-expense-paid, all-inclusive life vacation in prison in the Tower of London. And briefly, I spared her life, but then I realized that was rather unwise, and I prematurely sent her and her husband on to glory. I then set out to overturn all the Reformation damage of the males of my family. I issued several pro-Catholic laws declaring, and I quote, with all speed and diligence, that the reforms under Henry VIII and Edward VI be reversed. Simultaneously, I made it illegal for Protestant scholars to serve in universities or to serve in government, and I had every Protestant pastor defrocked and removed from their churches. 800 Protestants fled England for their lives into foreign exile. 300 Protestants were not so fortunate. I had them executed for heresy. And then this earned me a most unfair moniker, Bloody Mary. Unfair, for it was my father, Henry VIII, who put in excess of 70,000 people to death for various reasons. I barely executed 300 Protestants, and they called me bloody. Well, one Protestant I did manage to catch, as most fled the country, was Thomas Cranmer. You remember him? I hate him. And with him, I had two big bones to pick. First, it was Cranmer who allowed my father to divorce Catherine of Aragon before Anne Boleyn delivered. Catherine was my mother. And then Cranmer wrote the 12 sermons that catechized every English pulpit with reformational New Testament teachings rather than the teachings of the papacy. I had his teachings abolished. And equally satisfying, I had him burned at the stake. If you call me bloody for this, so be it. My name is Mary I. Queen Mary and Bloody Mary to some of you. Well, after hearing that, it's really a shocker that she described herself as unmarried. 
But Mary I was really a complicated person in the history of the Reformation. It was actually Cardinal Reginald Pohl who urged Mary I to persecute Protestants. Um, he actually told her that God has given the sword of justice into your hand. And then I quote him to say, in order that those who disobey his holy laws may be punished. Cardinal Pohl was alluding, of course, to uh, Romans 13, but that's not the intent that Paul had when he wrote Romans 13. You see, Romans 13 is about honoring legitimate governments. It's about recognizing that God has allowed certain authorities to be placed in our life for protection and oversight and even sometimes discipline and that we ought to come under that authority. But it's not about encouraging cruel, violent intolerance that leads to murder. Now, Mary was certainly not the first uh, monarch to murder those with different religious views, but she was truly hated for it. But that wasn't always the case. At one point, Mary I was really a loved individual. But a very short time later, she squandered that goodwill and became hated. I think there are two main reasons for this. The first reason is that she married Prince Philip of Spain. By doing so, effectively, she locked together those two monarchies between Spain and England, and the English people would have nothing of that. When the Spanish processional came into England for the wedding, the English populace welcomed them by bombarding them with snowballs. But equally damaging was Mary I's extreme violence toward Protestants. In fact, historians believe that she would have likely suffered a coup had she not died only six years into her reign in the year 1558. And it's really not an oversight to suggest that Mary's nearly 300 public executions of Protestant leaders and the max exodus of 800 more Protestant leaders from England, coupled with the fact that she removed every Protestant from leadership positions in England, it resulted in a humanitarian outrage of the people and this outrage guaranteed the success of the English Reformation because they were embittered by her actions. Mary I was Catholic, but her actions and the way that she conducted herself with Protestants essentially cemented Protestantism in England. Mary I was a classic example of someone that knew church dogma but knew very, very little about God's Word. She went to Mass every single day her whole life but she was biblically illiterate. I really pray that that's not a description that could be said of you or of I. But one of the greatest blessings of the Reformation is the renewal of the centrality of God's word, his inspired and errant word, the 66 books of the canon of scripture. And it's that word, the scripture, the Bible, that ought to be the authority in our life to guide us to inspire us, to illuminate the path before us. Not church tradition, not our customs and our, uh, the other things that, that oftentimes we bring into our lives, but God's word ought to be our guide. In Psalm 119, 97 to 100 and 104 and 105, 
we're reminded, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible is our authority. We have to know the word and live the word. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. My name is Hugh Latimer. Many call me England's greatest preacher. Forgive me. I forgot where I was. I'm at Highland. You know nothing about great preaching. (laughs) Anyway, before I became a great preacher, I just regularly preached church dogma, church tradition, rather than the inspired and errant word of God. But all that changed when I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Having come to Christ, I began to preach exegetically through the 66 books of Holy Scripture. You see, God impacted me. God impacted me in a little big way. I know that makes very little sense, a little big way, but bear with me. I was waxing eloquent one particular day, at least I thought I was, and in the front row was Thomas Bilney from Cambridge. Thomas Bilney was nicknamed Little Bilney because he was vertically challenged. No big deal, as we all know, God's favorites are all vertically challenged. Well, Little Bilney decided to bring a big message into my life. He wanted me to hear salvation by faith in Christ. He wanted me to hear passages like Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For at the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." And so he had this strategic plan in his mind of how he would share that with me. After I was preaching one day and he sat in the front row, he came up to me and he said, Priest Latimer, will you hear my confession? It's not as though I didn't have anything else to do, but it was part of my job. So I said, sure. He got in the confessor's side of the booth and I got in the priest's side and I began to hear his confession. Frankly, he was using words I didn't like. Words like all and we and us. Was his confession about me? Was he talking about me? He started out with Romans 3.23. This was his confession. All. Who's all? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's a good thing we were in the confessional booth. I would have stopped it right there. But he went on. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. Romans 6, 23. That the wages or what we deserve for our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he began to talk about Christ. 
He cited 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, that is, Jesus never sinned, to be sin, to be covered with sin, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And on his confession went. Later I told an acquaintance of mine that my heart warmed as I heard this confession. And while I was in the confessional booth, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I believed in Christ as Savior, and it was in the confessional booth that I vowed I would never preach another message on church dogma and church tradition, but I would preach through God's inspired and errant word. And so I began to do so. One of my most famous sermons came out of Romans 15.4, which says that all things are written for us, for our understanding. The sermon on the plow was homespun. It was about us, you, I, Christ followers, being at the plow, plowing the seeds of the gospel, being workmen approved by God, not just being lackadaisical in our life, but serving the Lord, living for the Lord, being committed to the Lord. And so I talked about the need for every one of us, priest and laity, to be found at the plow, to be serving God. Basically, it was a restatement of 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be ye reconciled to God. It was that sermon preached at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. As you know, the second largest church building in the world at age 69, to a packed audience that caught the attention of Mary I, Bloody Mary. And she treated me to an all-expense, inclusive stay at the Tower of London. Now, as you probably know, the Tower of London in my day served four primary purposes. It was actually a royal palace during times of war, the monarchs could go there and be protected. In addition to that, it was an armory where we would store weapons. Finally, it was a place of incarceration and a place of persuasion. I was not invited to the palace or the armory, but I was invited to the center of incarceration for persuasion where I was told quite clearly that if I did not deny my faith and if I did not begin to preach sermons that were outside of Scripture but totally inside of church tradition and heritage, I would be burned at the stake. I refused to recant my faith. And I refused to recant teaching from God's inspired and errant word. And in 1555, I was taken to the stake. But not only was I there, but another reformer, Ridley, was there. They tied us to the stakes. They began to light the logs. 
And I could look in the face of Ridley and I could see he was about to recant. He was about to deny his faith. And it was then that I preached, empowered by God's Spirit, my most famous sermon, only a few sentences long. I looked at him and I said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. Today, by God's grace, we will light such a candle in England for Christ that it will never go out. And God used that message in Ridley's life to solidify him. And that day, we were martyred for the faith. And so I come to you today And I say, do not be persuaded by the winds of popularity. Do not be persuaded by the bits of persecution that fall on the church. Do not allow the mores and the values of society to become your own. Stand firm. Play the woman. Play the man. Vow today, by God's grace, that you will light a candle in central Wisconsin that will never go out. My name is Hugh Latimer. The fortunate thing for our friend Hugh is that his hat makes him look a little bit less vertically challenged. But Hugh Latimer is a man of great faith, of authentic faith. He's someone that lived out Matthew 5, 11 to 12 very well. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, Jesus said, account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How great will Latimer's reward in heaven be? How about mine? What about yours? I pray that we would be inspired to live the word in our lives, that we would speak the words to others, that we would apply it in a way that truly results in life change to us, just like Hugh Latimer. He's a man who brought glory to God without compromise. People like Latimer are people that embrace Jesus. They embrace his word and they live out their salvation in Christ by faith alone. They live for God's glory, not their own. Or in the words of the Reformation, they live by the five solas. They remember sola scriptura. It's scripture alone, not church tradition, not customs, but by God's word that we live and that we are guided and that we continue to operate as Christ followers. And then there's three solas that we live by as it applies to our salvation. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And solas Christus, through Christ alone. And so we, by faith, embrace Christ alone. And God's grace covers us because Jesus took upon himself our sin, our guilt, our shame. And when we come to him and we recognize that we have a sin problem and that we can't solve it on our own, we have the opportunity to come before the Lord and let him know 
that we're sinners and that we want to embrace Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection alone. And by the power of his spirit, we want to turn from our sin and allow his saving grace to come into our life and to wash us clean. And when we do that, we're able to function by living through God's word every single day of our lives, by sharing that with others, the best news mankind has ever known. And we do these things under the fifth sola, and that's soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Would you bow as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are reminded through these three characters a little bit more of who you are. We've heard some bad examples. We've heard some good examples of what it means or doesn't mean to live out faith in one's lives. Thank you for the reminder that our faith is in Christ alone. It's not contributed to by our good works, but our good works are an outworking of the faith that has changed us from the inside out when we have embraced Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for giving us your spirit, which empowers us to live for you, that gives us the assurance of being with you for all of eternity. Thank you for giving us your word, the 66 books of the Bible, from which we can draw wisdom and gain insight on how you want us to live and help us to do so in a way that honors you and pleases you and shares that same light with others. Just as Ridley and Latimer, with their dying breath, gave glory to you, and we continue to see their example even today. So thank you for this time that we can share together. Thank you for your word, and thank you most of all for the incredible gift of your son Jesus, whose sacrifice on the cross allows us to have a relationship with you And we pray these things for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.